From the studios of WHUPLP in Hillsborough, North Carolina, this is Dirty White Belt Radio. Innovative, often duplicated When enough people get on the trend I elevate it, make it way harder For them to follow what I take It hard to swallow like a lozenger Lodged in your trachea Goodness gracious, bruh, I can never make this up So just take your stuff Rake it up and take the bus Never fake the funk, you painted skunks You played enough, I'm lifting bars to outer space So the weight is up Fight, Welcome to another episode of Dirty White Belt Radio, everyone. It is April 2nd, 2017, the anniversary of the first ever jiu-jitsu tournament I competed in, lo, these many years ago. And who better to have in the studio with me to talk about uh, life, the universe, and everything than my instructor, Hoist Crazy Black Belt, Seth Champ. We'll get to our featured interview with Seth in just a minute. He's got a bunch of interesting things to say about sport jiu-jitsu, about mixed martial arts, about self-defense, about all manner of jiu-jitsu life and culture. And we'll get to that uh, after the news segment. First, got to tell you how to get a hold of the show, though. You can always email the show at cagesidewhup at gmail.com or get us on Twitter and Instagram. Our Twitter is DWB Radio and our Instagram is Dirty White Belt. You can also always hit us up on Facebook. Our Facebook page is at Cageside Radio. If you're listening to this show, you probably like jujitsu gear, and you could probably use a free new gi. If those things are true, then go to armbarbox.com slash DWB for your chance to get both. The Armbar Box is a subscription jujitsu lifestyle box that delivers full-size jujitsu products to your door every month. And now, if you join the Armbar Box's VIP pre-launch, you have a chance to win a free gi. All you need to do to enter the free gi giveaway is sign up for their email list and then share to win points. So go to armbarbox.com slash DWB for your chance to win that free gi and to check out those products. We're going to get right into it today because we have a lot to get to, uh, but I want to start off with a brief news segment. It's the middle of the Chicago Open this weekend. The Chicago Open is an IBJJF tournament that is two days. The first day is in the gi, and the second day is no gi. We are unfortunately recording just as the no gi is getting started, so we don't have an opportunity to tell you the full results. We're going to post the complete results to our Facebook page, but I do want to shout out a couple of results so far. First of all, Nora from Upstream BJJ, who is in the studio with us when we interviewed Seth Smith last week, got bronze in the gi, is competing again no gi, so congratulations, Nora, and good luck today. We also had a couple of our of our friends from Forged Fitness compete yesterday. John Bagels Telford got silver in his brown belt division, and I'm not sure if Bagels is competing again in the no-gi today, but, uh, but Bagels showed up, got silver. Congratulations to Bagels. The one thing I definitely want to lift up, and, if, and this is floating around Facebook, so if you have the chance to check it out on Facebook, do check it out. Uh, Patrick Canoose, and Patrick, I apologize if I'm butchering your last name, but uh, Patrick competed uh, in the gi and won his first match, and then suffered a grisly either break of dislocation or dislocation of his finger in, the, in his second uh, gi match in his weight class. Now, you may ask, why am I telling you about this? Well, first of all, um, if, you, if you haven't seen the Facebook Live video of it, um, I wouldn't be showing, telling you this if it weren't such a display of savagery, which is basically Patrick displaying no effects of pain whatsoever, uh, urges, uh, his, uh, urges the medic to pull that insert thing I can't say on the radio and uh and just kind of wants to go back and compete even though his fingers just been uh been devastated and I was like there's no chance that this dude is going to continue to compete 
And not only does he continue to compete, but he goes on to do the Absolute and gets a silver medal in Absolute in the Gi. So, Patrick, congratulations. I hope you enjoyed some healthy adult beverages last night, and I hope that finger is feeling better. It, really a great display of fortitude and jujitsu skill. So, congratulations to those folks. Um, so, silver for Patrick, silver for Bagels, bronze for Nora. Best of luck to everybody going in the No Gi uh, today. A couple of other things to get to in the in the news segment. Um, U.S. grappling, April 22nd and April 23rd in Charlotte, North Carolina. This one is a special U.S. grappling tournament because it's going to be on two different days. There's The adults are going to compete on the 22nd and the kids are going to compete on the 23rd. It's also part of the Europa Games, which uh, means that it's there's a variety of other game and entertainment festivities happening. The bad news is that means that if you're not competing, you are going to have to pay a spectator fee. The good news is it's going to be worth it. U.S. grappling, as we mentioned, is our favorite tournament organization for many reasons, the best run tournaments that I've ever been a part of. I will be there um, hanging out, competing, coaching. Um, it'll be Betsy O'Donovan's first ever jiu-jitsu tournament, so I'm very excited about that. And if you haven't registered, you can go online to usgrappling.com and register right now. Save yourself some money by pre-registering it in advance and show up and have a good time April 22nd, 23rd. And finally, by way of segue, um, the weekend before U.S. Grappling is April 15th in Lynchburg. Um, my guest, Seth Champ, is going to be teaching a seminar that is April 15th in Lynchburg at the Edge Martial Arts. And he's going to be teaching all manner of things, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, all kinds of terrific black belt secrets. So if you're anywhere near the Lynchburg area, I can personally vouch for you don't want to miss this if you have, uh, if you have any interest in learning and getting better at Jiu-Jitsu. Our featured interview today is brought to you by Toro Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Company. Toro BJJ produces the highest quality gis, rash guards, and grappling supplies for every Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practitioner. You can check them out online at torobjj.com. Our thanks to Toro Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for making our featured interview possible. So let's get to it. Without further ado, I think it's probably time to bring in the author of that seminar, uh, my instructor, Hoist Gracie Black Belt, Seth Champ, owner of Triangle Jiu-Jitsu right here in Durham, North Carolina. Welcome, Seth. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you back in the studio. Many of you may remember, uh, Seth was one of our earliest guests, a little over a year ago when we first started the show. We haven't been had you on since since we've been in the new uh, the new school. Mm-hmm. And so I thought we'd get started by talking about, you know, obviously you've had a long journey in martial arts as uh, a competitor, as someone who trains in both jiu-jitsu and MMA, um, someone who competes, and, you know, certainly as an instructor. And I think we should, we should start by talking about you as an instructor and a school owner. Because it seems like the school has really taken off over the last year or so. Is that your impression? Yeah, it's been a an interesting um, switch from locations. It was uh, about a year ago right now, I think, that Boomer and I decided that we were going to try to move into this new location, which was a little bit further outside of Durham, um, which I think had me a little bit nervous. But um, I can definitely say that moving into the new facility, putting in the time and the and the um, to the renovations to really make this place look nice and give it a nice solid feel, um, people have really um, embraced the changes, and I haven't really lost very many students, and quite and the opposite gained a lot of students from the different areas and surrounding areas. So, it's been um, an interesting journey over the last year that. That few months there when we were getting ready to move in was was such a group effort from all of my students and all of, uh, you know, the cage side crew and, and all the people that are associated with Toro BJJ. And then, um, you know, Boomer's wife really took over this endeavor of North Durham CrossFit. And so the three of us, uh, the three owners of, of this new facility, North Durham CrossFit, Cage Side Fight Company, 
and Triangle Jiu-Jitsu have all moved into this new location. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have come by to either, you know, Toro Cups or just to see the new spot. And uh, it's been really fun. You know, it's been a lot of a lot of work, but I think it's starting to pay off. And we're enjoying our new spot. Most definitely. Uh, so I want to get into your instructional philosophy in a second. But while we're talking about the facility, one of the things that's been interesting for me along my journey is to start in because you you and James Boomer Hogaboom have been basically business partners for quite a while. We're in the same facility when I started training, but it was a much smaller facility. It was a much more out of the way facility. And one of the cool things for me to see about the new facility is to sort of unify those various elements of the local martial arts scene in one spot. Like you have your local fight shop, cage side MMA and Toro BJJ. You have North Rim CrossFit for people that, you know, are more into the fitness side, the want to exercise. And of course you have Gracie Jiu Jitsu with the, the mats, the cage, the, uh, the private room for training sessions. Now, what is that? Like, what has that journey been like for you? It's been interesting. So I think that both Boomer and I have had this same philosophy, which has made us jive really well, which was grow with your student base, go grow with your customer base, grow with your uh, your actual increase in revenue. And I know there's a lot of schools out there. Um, I've seen a lot of friends of mine um, or just stories from around the country of people, you know, wanting to open up a jujitsu school, wanting to open up a martial arts academy or even just start a clothing company or a gi company. There's a lot of people out there that try to get into this. Um, And there's a couple of schools of thought, you know, really investing a ton up front and then hoping for the return and then really, you know, having to wade through some some tough times or just start small and grow with your student base. And that's what we did. We were very small. And you remember when that, I mean, we started just on some mats at a karate school. um, And then we grew into this tiny little place with Boomer. And then when we were bursting at the seams, took that next step and so on and so forth a few different times to where we're at now. And I don't see us outgrowing our current facility. I mean, we're like an 18,000 square feet right now and we still got room to grow. So um, it's been, it's been interesting, but I certainly do sometimes pinch myself and be like, wow, I made it this far. You know, I did not foresee, maybe maybe I dreamt, but, you know, I was a little skeptical of the ability to get from a little warehouse bay, you know, with a, a big bay door to um, something that had this much, you know, mat space and that was really clean and finished looking. Um, it, there's a sense of accomplishment, but at the same time, uh, when we get on the mats, there's also this feeling of it doesn't really matter where I am. You know, when the gi belt gets tied and, and the buzzer sounds, it's just you're just rolling, you're sparring or you're teaching or you're doing jujitsu. So, yes, it's nice, I think, for new students to come in. But there's a lot of people who are just comfortable getting on the mats and getting after it. Most definitely. Yeah. Like, it doesn't really matter if someone is smashing your face in a tiny <laughs> warehouse or if someone is smashing your face in the nicest facility ever. It's yep. Still, still, you're still getting your face smashed. Um so, you know, early on, it seemed like, you know, what is the difference between training at, you know, is there a difference between training with like eight? Because I remember there were probably eight to 15 real regulars. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and those folks were by and large pretty hardcore. There weren't too many casual folks. There were folks that were there every night. And now you have a wide variety of folks on the mats. They're like, I don't even know how many students Triangle Jiu-Jitsu has now, but it's it's way more than 8 to 15 regulars. <laughs> yeah. And, and those vary from, like, the hardcores, the Kim Rices, the Jason Masks that are, like, on the mat every chance they get to the folks that are like, I'm going to do this twice a week, really enjoy it. And, like, what's the, what's the difference for you as an instructor? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think I kind of ran across that the other day when I was um, looking through some of my notes on students and different things that I have with with different students. Um, And I was thinking about the times where a big class for me would be seven or eight people. That would feel like a nice, good, solid class, you know, a good circle around me while I'm teaching and, and then getting some good roles in at the end of it. And 
I try to at least keep that in my mind as to what what that was like and 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 what it was because it helps me, um, you know, be able to embrace what I would consider smaller classes today. Any instructor out there knows exactly what I'm talking about. That when you have a full mat of students, there's an energy that is palpable that helps create um, a better learning environment for everybody. You're just sort of feeding off the energy of, of everybody. That same thing took place in music. That same thing takes place in sports with basketball. It's the more people that are around helping feed the energy, the better off you feel. Um, and so when you have a class, a random Tuesday day class, and you've got four or five people that showed up on the mat, you know, you want to make sure that you're able to tap into the same energy to give these four students um, that same jujitsu lesson that you would be giving if there was 34 students on the mat. And so for me, I try to remember back to those days when it was small and intimate and try to at least harness the way that I was feeling about teaching jujitsu then so that I can give those same lessons when I have smaller classes today because jujitsu classes hit or miss. You know, we do we train every day of the week, every night of the week. So you're going to have people who um, are there all the time. And then there's people there who are there only some of the time. But certainly having a core group of hardcore training people, you know, that are there all the time, um, you can at least count on having some good roles and some good, you know, people to help teach the class. Mm-hmm. One thing about that answer I want to lift up for some listeners who may not be as familiar with you is, you know, Seth mentions like music and like like sport. In addition to being a Hoist Gracie black belt, Seth also is a former Division One college basketball player who also was a professional touring musician for many years and so has a lot of experience in terms of like not just teaching but performing and competing at very high levels, and maybe we'll get into that a little bit as the interview progresses. But when I was, I want to stick with this idea of teaching. And so, one thing that you've instil- instilled in me in the classes um, from early on is that triangle jiu-jitsu has three sides, and that's part of why it's called triangle jiu-jitsu. And so, I'm wondering if you could tell the listeners what you feel like those three sides of jiu-jitsu are. From your yeah. Point. So, interestingly enough, maybe I don't know if actually I explained this last time when I was on the, the podcast, but the name triangle jiu-jitsu was devised uh, about ten years ago. Um, around a few different things. And one of them was the most obvious one that we live in the triangle. So most people pick up on that right away and say, oh, triangle jiu-jitsu comes from living the triangle. And that's certainly one aspect of it. Um, another aspect of it is um, the idea that the triangle shape itself is very fundamental um, to being a strong base, um, to being well-grounded. Um, I think Hickson was was a guy who wrote um, a nice... I think back then you would call it an essay. Now it may be called a blog post, but I think it was about 15 years ago or so. He wrote um, the importance of the triangle in jiu-jitsu, where it's found in jiu-jitsu, how the triangle shape is so fundamental. And I think that's a large part why most jiu-jitsu logos involve a triangle, um, because it's found when you're doing a rear naked choke. It's found when you stand up in base. It's found when you you know do different things. It's also, geometrically speaking, the most fundamental shape to move. If you think about a, a circle, it moves pretty easily like a hula hoop. If that hula hoop was a decagon or a hexagon, it would get a little more difficult to move each time until it was finally a triangle, which would be the most difficult one to move. Um, but then the other reason is because our jujitsu, when we first started this, was rooted in three aspects, which was the self-defense aspect first and foremost, and then the sport side of jujitsu and the MMA side of jujitsu were sort of these other two um, aspects. And so we teach from those three sides. And truthfully, on our mats at any given time, there are people there for any of those three reasons. You know, there's people that are there for the self-defense. There's people that are there for sport jujitsu. There's people that are there because they might want to fight. Then there's people that are just trying to get in shape. There's people, you know, there for a lot of reasons. But the main reasons were uh, sport jujitsu, self-defense, and MMA. And that's sort of where our name came from was those three sides. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So let's talk about you as a practitioner for a second, which is, you know, while we're talking about competition, do you have moments from your own competition career that you are proudest of personally? And while you're thinking about that, I would also like you to think about the moments from your students' competitive careers that you might be most proud of. And I know those might be apples and oranges, but uh, but I'm sure they're related. Yeah, so that's an interesting question. For my own competition, um, I think I'm just most proud of any of those tournaments where I really dedicated myself to preparing properly anybody who's competed a number of times knows that there's you know times when you compete and you're really well prepared and ready to get after it and you feel like it could go you know for days and there's other times where you could have done more and um and it might may or may not manifest itself in your you know results you may coast through it just fine unprepared and and do do just fine on it Uh, other times you it may show um so i win or lose i think i'm most uh proud of those ones where I knew that I was putting the best version of myself. I think Atlanta 2013, we all went down there with a massive squad and uh, did really, really well. And I remember in that tournament feeling like I could go for days. I remember being somewhere in the absolute division. I think it was, um, I think you told me this story afterwards. You were standing next to my opponent's coach and his coach yelled something to the effect of, I was on top trying to pass and his coach yelled, don't worry about it. No matter what he does, he's still not going to pass your guard. And I remember, you know, being in this moment where like I had so much energy and I was like, this is my third or fourth match in the day and I'm passing this really tricky guard, but I felt him break under me at one point where he was just like moaning under my pressure. And eventually I passed and you told me that story afterwards and I was just like, yeah, you know, (laughs) I was ready to go for 10 minutes, 12 minutes, 15 minutes. And when I could keep that pressure up, when I know that I'm not going to get tired, um, I just know I can wear people down on top. And so those are the ones that I think stand out for me. for my students, certainly some of the big successes um, at the at the highest level. Watching you know Kim win some of her medals, um, watching Shayla do what she did last year at the Worlds was pretty awesome. And then also watching some of my students competing in uh, some of the sub only stuff. Like watching Anya go for fifty seven minutes was pretty impressive. Um, Watching some of the people who've stepped in the cage to fight, um, you know, Jojo has worked really hard at different times to compete. Um, and then just seeing the people who are willing to um, sacrifice a lot for jujitsu and then test themselves like Amber and Eric who drive down from Virginia weekly and sometimes bi-weekly, you know, seeing them put that kind of dedication in, and manifest it in what they're most interested in, which is, you know, getting out into the sports circuit. You know, they work hard and seeing them do well when they work hard is very you know, rewarding for me and gratifying. Um, then other people, you know, like you watching you do your first tournament or when you were a white belt, I think you competed in eight brackets or something like that. Just seeing people who are bit by the bug and then willing to go out there and see what's up. Um, that's motivating. You know, it's motivating as, a, as an instructor because this person is is taking these lessons that I'm giving them and, and, and willing to believe me to the point that they could go out there in a cage or, or in a, on a on a mat and uh, – not get killed because of what I've showed them so far. And uh, so there's something that's motivating for me to uh, continue to do that and, and feel proud when my students, um, you know, have some success or just have a good positive experience. Mm-hmm. U.S. Grappling changed my life six years ago today. 
That's right, today, April 2nd, 2017, is my six-year anniversary of competing in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu tournaments, the first of which being the North Carolina State Championships, run by U.S. Grappling on April 2nd, 2011. I won some matches, I lost some matches, I got my face squeezed by men much larger than me, and I was never the same. You too can have these amazing experiences at U.S. Grappling tournaments, including Charlotte, North Carolina, coming up April 22nd and 23rd, with the adults on the 22nd, the kids on the 23rd. Register online at U.S grappling.com and you can have the type of fun experiences you'll be telling people about six years to come and who knows maybe you'll even have a nerdy podcast to talk about your experiences about it by then thanks u.s grappling for continually running the best tournaments around and keep changing lives like mine for the better Let me follow up with something that I think is a common thread between all those answers and you can tell me if I'm wrong or not but like what's kind of interesting is I sort of expect when I ask like, hey, what are you most proud of? What are the achievements? Blah, blah, blah. To hear, like, a laundry list of medals. And and for the record, you know, Seth has coached world champions. Kim won the worlds at Blue Belt. Shayla, too. Um, bronze medal at the worlds. Like, all, all these, like, really, like, legitimate, like, hey, benchmark achievements. But it sounds to me like... Like your answer is a lot more about process, like your own results, and you know you've won the pans, you've won a bunch, you know you've won golds at various IBJJF and, and US grappling tournaments, but like in your answers, I hear more like, hey, when I put the best version of myself on the mats, that's what I'm proud of, or when you know when I watch people really get after it and get sort of get the most out of themselves, mm. and you know, it seems like that's the common thread to your answers. It is, it because winning and losing is going to happen all the time um, but behind the scenes is really what that work is I remember I mean we've you know this as well as I do what we're what we do when we go to competition training what we do on random Tuesday mornings at the pool what we do uh, after class at the you know stadiums at Duke or UNC when we're running stadium stairs in the dark you know and there's eight of us just randomly at 1030 at night and you can see each other at different places in the in the stadium let's that's the dedication that is so rewarding because there's nothing there there's no like money no one's paying this person to do this no one's they're just we're just doing it because we want to put the best versions of ourselves out there and that's that's a that's a rare thing i tell my students um in a lot of different capacities too is that you know to be able to push yourself mentally to be able to push yourself to a place that you're not comfortable with uh there's you know not everybody embraces that not everybody gets the chance to do that in life and when you have you know sort of the ability i guess the luxury sometimes for certain um to be able to just say, I'm going to go as hard as I possibly can and, and work for a couple months to put the best version of myself together physically while I can, um, discipline and all that stuff. Those are the rewards that I think come out of it. And then a medal is cool. You know, a medal is cool. But um, even if you come away with a bronze medal or a silver medal, that's why I, you know, there's a lot of people who hate on taking a medal for not having a match, right? And, you know, and I've said this to people before is that, you know, a medal, let's say, I, I knew I was talking to a student the other day who did the Charlotte Open um, last fall. And um, we at Triangle Jiu-Jitsu, like most of the people in North Carolina, you know, really prepared and wanted to put the best version of ourselves out there. And I had a big push to let's get Team Hoist Gracie on the podium to win the, 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 the team title. And uh, I think we took second or third in the team points title for that. But we had so many people working so, so hard. And uh, I had a student who I think went into the Masters 5 division or Masters 4 division. And um, he was a blue belt. And he prepared and he dieted and he trained and he went after it. And he had absolutely 
no control over who was going to be in his division. He had no um, no way to make people sign up in this division. Um, and even he think he was down a weight, an age group from where he normally would have been. And um, he put the best version of himself out there, and nobody showed up, and he got this medal. And I don't think that medal should be tossed away. I think that medal should be representative of eight weeks of this guy's life, who's in his 50s, or two months of his life, where he just put everything aside and said, I'm going to work hard. And if you dieted and if, you know you lift and you, you run and you do all that stuff, uh, th- there's a representation of it, and there's there's something to be said for it. So props to him you know, for doing that. I think that's the, the real win in tournaments is, is putting the best version of yourself forward. Yeah, I think that's a terrific attitude. And it's funny, we all, in jiu-jitsu, a lot of people talk about, and I think this is true, that the will to win isn't as important as the will to prepare to win. But, like, sometimes people hate on, like, like pe- people forget that, you know, that eight weeks of preparation, you know, matters a lot more in the long run mm-hmm. than the five minutes or however it would be on the mat. So let's talk about Seth the Instructor for a second. You mentioned that, like, in any given class, especially the bigger classes, tons of different people are there for tons of different reasons, right? Some people are here for self-defense. Some people just want to get in shape. There are people that are competitors. There are people that just like learning new things. And so how, as a teacher, do you adapt to those, and, and, you know, to say nothing of all the different levels of experience, right? People from, you know, Rod Detroit Hanson, who's been Mm -hmm. training for years, to the brand new White Belt. How do you adapt your teaching to the various audiences? Yeah, I think that the... The most important thing you can do is not assume that anybody you're teaching knows what you're about to say or what you're talking about. Um, I think a lot of the times, especially when you have a map full of experienced people, like maybe, you know, now we're in a, such a different place at Triangle Jiu-Jitsu where I can have on my mat at any given night three brown belts, you know, seven purple belts, a sea of blue and white belts. And that is a lot different than when I was teaching all blue and white belts. And so when I have those up there, I know that there was a time and I'm pretty well, you know, adjusted to this now, but maybe a few years ago where I would be teaching something about a position that might be pretty advanced and feel like perhaps I'm saying something that these people already know and they're bored with and they're over, you know, teaching something pretty basic and pretty fundamental. And these purple belts have seen this a hundred times. And then one of them will ask me the most rudimentary fundamental question about something that I would obviously think they know and be almost, you know, brought back down to reality, be like, okay, you know, this is something that everybody needs to learn. This is something everybody needs to go. And even if they've seen this 30, 40 times, you know, over their journey, they're seeing it again and learning from it today. Um, so as an instructor, I don't assume that uh, anything that I'm teaching is obsolete or unnecessary because I believe in the jujitsu that we're doing. I believe in the curriculum that we have. I believe in the, uh, the just the approach of our jujitsu. And, um, you know, my students, my more experienced students help me um, you know, with with sort of remembering the journey, because all, all white belts don't know anything. You know, most white belts don't know anything, but it's the purple belts who ask a question that reminds you, okay, purple belts are still on their journey too. Purple belts still need these details. Purple belts still need to learn this stuff. So, um, you know, as an instructor, I've sort of, I guess, kind of grown with my students, you know. I, you know, I was thinking, as you know, you started teaching this this last year, and it's been uh, probably eye-opening for you. Boomer has started running a class over the last few months. Um, it's probably been interesting for you guys to s- make that switch from student to instructor. And it's not just about taking the jujitsu and teaching it. It's about answering the questions. It's about, um, 
you know, sort of staying detail oriented. So if I were to flip that script back onto you and ask you, you know, <laughs> as you started to teach, what's been your trickiest transition from student to instructor, if you felt that? Well, that's a terrific question. And, and like, I will say the skill sets are so different. And I think, so, so I'm going to answer this in a couple different ways. I, so it's been a great transition because I think I've learned a lot from it. And the, the biggest challenge is reverse engineering the stuff that you know so well that it's almost ingrained and it's almost a process of relearning. So for example, if you're teaching somebody, like, like I've always tried, you know, I always go to the fundamentals class because of the phenomenon that you described. Like even the simplest, most basic technique is something that you're never going to know as well as you need to. And so something like the scissor sweep, right? It's on the fundamental curriculum. Um, every, everybody knows it. And it's always it's been something I've done since White Belt. And it becomes so ingrained in you that you just do it, right? Your body and your mind recognize when the opponent has created the conditions for you to scissor sweep them. Like, okay, I have the right grips. Oh, their base is compromised. Bam. But it's really different than teaching a new white belt who doesn't know anything, right? Like, oh, well, you just do it. Well, it's, it's right there. Can't you see it? How can you not see that? Come on. And so teaching involves reconstruction of that, of not just setting up the conditions, because because one of the other things about learning at purple belt that's different than learning at white belt is every move has all these different details, right? All these, these myriad details that are really small but that make all the difference. But if you were to teach a brand new white belt, all right, folks, here's the scissor sweep that I, after years of learning this intensely, and here's all the details that I know broken down, you're going to lose them because you're going to swamp them. Mm-hmm. And it's like, hey, here's 85 different parts of this move and it's like no no you know you have to you, you have to show them the basics and then you add in the details and so the biggest challenge for me has been first the process of I think relearning the move where it's like okay this this has been innate it's been something that's just instinctual for me to do now and I have to sort of break it down and reconstruct with like okay my instinct tells me to get this grip why do I get this grip ah okay okay and now okay and and then the second biggest challenge is conveying to the new person why I do that because it's because it's one thing to know why you do it but it's another thing to convey to another person this is why I do it in a language that they can easily understand yeah and there's so much into that there's so much wrapped into that because you don't necessarily know this person's experience where they come from why they're there what's brought them there I mean I look at my fundamentals class on Friday and I had I think 10 no stripe white belts who are in their first at least five classes. They were all within their first five classes, all with different reasons for being there, all on the mat sharing this. And difficult is it to figure out how to explain this technique within the confines of why you're here, you know? And that's why when I do private lessons, I always start with why are you here, (laughs) you know? Because I can individually find out what it is you're here for and why you're here. But in a group setting, trying to find a way to do that. Um, And then I think that, that within that, ability of to, to transition to an instructor for me was also such a uh, an opportunity to continue learning jujitsu um, that is a that is a question that people ask me a lot how do you continue to grow and get good and and, and, and and grow as a martial artist while not training with black belts consistently and having people better than you and these are this is something that I think, I tell everybody all the time and that like if I were to teach you how to do an arm bar on the very first class that you've ever done, you're lucky if one of those or two of those details actually connects. You know, you walk away from that class, maybe in your head somewhere you're like, okay, I think that arm was between my legs and I was pulling on, you know, but if you take that class again two months later, 
a few more details set in, and then a few months later, a few more details set in. And that process continues. <clears throat> that process con- continues up through your jujitsu. And even as an instructor now, m- my growth is becoming co- from conceptual uh, ways of looking at jujitsu and understanding jujitsu. Like, and it's even, and what I, what I love about it is like a few years back, um, I had a, an epiphany, which is, you know, I'm not embarrassed to say it because at, at the time I think I was embarrassed to say, but it was just like random class. I don't even remember where it was, but it was a few years ago I was in training and realizing maybe when I was teaching the Mount or something like that, Mount maintenance that, you know, as I stay on top of this person in the mount and they exert a ton of energy to get out from underneath me and I, you know, maintain a, an efficient amount of energy to stay on top, they will get tired and I will will not get as tired, thus making my opponent beneath me much more submittable, much more easier to subdue. And it was like this epiphany was like, ah, how does the little person beat the big person? They get them more tired and they're easier to beat. You know, and it was like, I've heard that hundreds of times that the small person, you know, has a chance with jujitsu and that jujitsu was devised for the little person. And we talk about so many different ways that means something. I use large muscle groups against small muscle groups. Um, I make them tired by being efficient with my energy. But then it just clicked to me. It's like a brown belt, you know, like one of the most easy and most, you know, heard things about jujitsu is that it's devised for the smaller person to beat the bigger person. And there I am as a brown belt having an epiphany on one of the main reasons how. Mm-hmm. I don't know that every person learns the same, so it's a matter of being in the game long enough for the way you learn and jujitsu to connect. You know, and so some people like BJ Penn get a few lessons, and you know they're immediately jumping up. You know, some people can move through the ranks of jujitsu super quick because of the way they learn and the way their instructor learns with them. Who knows? You know, um, but for me, I'm not embarrassed to say that certain things take a long time to sink in for whatever reason it is. Um, but I'm also extremely um, grateful for that. I'm extremely grateful for the fact that I'm get to look down maybe the next 20 years and be excited about what I already know and how I really don't know it and what I might actually end up learning about what I think I know, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm excited for my students to go through that process too, you know, um, who are, who are coming up through the ranks and also maybe starting to teach a little bit. And as our school grows, certainly students are, you know, welcome to try to help cover some classes here and there, especially if it's something they're interested in doing. And when students come to me and ask, you know, or at least express interest in covering classes when I'm out of town or something, I like to give them that opportunity and get some feedback from them and see how their teaching grows, you know. I want to talk to you guys about Cageside Fight Company for a second. I've been buying from Cageside for more than six years, and about 99% of the gear that I use is from Cageside. That's not because other companies don't make good stuff. They do. It's just that Cageside offers the highest quality products at the best value and, no joke, the best customer service I've ever experienced in my life. So whether you're looking for shin pads, whether you're looking for Thai gear, whether you're looking for Brazilian jiu-jitsu geese or Valetudo shorts, whether you're looking for the coolest t-shirts around, check out Cageside.com or come into their fight shop at one two four Lotter Road right in Durham, North Carolina. You won't be sorry. Another thing I want to mention about Cage Side is they do more to support local fighters and local Brazilian jiu-jitsu competitors than just about anybody else. And so we've got to support the people that support us. Check out Cage Side Fight Company, 124 Lotter Road in Durham, North Carolina, or online at cageside.com. One of the things that's interesting to me about teaching that that I heard that, that I want to elevate from what you talked about is that 
you know, different people can you can hear the same thing from a couple different people and it can only sink in for one other thing. Like a lot of times the analogies you use utterly resonate with me. Like you, the analogy you use commonly about ju learning jujitsu is like you don't read a book about chemistry and become a chemist in the same way you don't take the armbar class and hey, I know the armbars now. Next move, yep. you know, never right. have to learn armbars again. Right. You know, and, and so there's a lot of, and that is an analogy that utterly, that, 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 that clicked with me immediately. But one thing that, that I noticed that's funny, and I've noticed this in teaching my own classes as well as in watching students take your classes, is I'll see guys say, man, I've, I've never heard that detail before. And I'm like, I have seen Seth tell <laughs> you that personally three times. Right. But, you know, for whatever reason, it may be a communication thing. Yeah, so. and, and I hope that most, uh, it, it doesn't really bother me too much, but like, when when a student does come up to me after class or be like, you know, oh, man, I, I, I finally that finally makes sense. You know, I hope that somewhere in their head they know that they have heard that before, that they have said that because someone did that to me the other day. I was teaching uh, I was teaching the daily Hiva guard, some aspects of the daily Hiva guard. And they were like, oh, it finally clicked. You know, I'm supposed to try to keep their knee pointed that way. You know, that way they can stay. I can keep that angle with me. And I was like, yep. <laughs> I was like, there it is. You know, and this is someone who's probably a purple belt who's probably taken this class a bunch of times. But for whatever reason, that's just jujitsu. Mm -hmm. And what a great thing. What a great thing that, that, that we are challenging ourselves with that is not easy to learn, you know, um, and you, we've, you know, you've heard me use the analogies of chess and obviously chess is a very extremely vast world of, of possibilities. Um, and so it takes something with that many possibilities to challenge us. You know, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it and great at it. And, uh, but it's not. And so it takes a, uh, takes a certain way of learning. And I think as an instructor, that's really helped me understand the educational process in general. Um, I was talking to someone the other day about just my early education, like growing up through elementary school, middle school and high school. And, um, you know, I was very focused in on basketball growing up through uh, from the very early age. And so school wasn't super important to me, but some things were intriguing to me, but I was just not a great student. Looking back on it now, I can see um, as an instructor specifically and also having kids in the educational system as well, is that, you know, if kids are not motivated or not um you know, intrigued by the, the the lesson plans at school, you know, there's some there's somewhat of a responsibility for the instructor, the teachers, to find ways to to connect, and that is extremely difficult. It's way challenge too challenging, right? And there are so many teachers out there teaching in elementary school, middle school, and high school, primarily middle school and high school, um, that maybe shouldn't be teaching. <laughs> you know, maybe shouldn't be teaching because teachers, true teachers true communicators of knowledge that they're trying to impart are are rare they're rare you know to be like able to say this is like to read a student and say this is how this student learns i got to find some ways to connect with this student um that's a that's a difficult thing like i'll give you an example i was teaching guitar lessons one time and um and when i was teaching guitar there was this uh student who was not um getting the uh, basics of how I was trying to get them to learn their scales. And if you don't know much about guitars, basically your left hand has to learn to do some pretty rudimentary movements. And once they learn those movements, that hand can slide up and down the neck and play scales in any key. So if this song's in C, I just move my hand up and then I can go If it's in F, I can move down and do the exact same movements. So there's some root movements with the fingers. And this kid was having a really hard time getting it until I uh, was able to find a way to connect with him 
one lesson. Um, he's a brilliant young young man who um, is into writing code. He's only in like fifth or sixth grade, seventh grade, but he loves writing code on the computers and playing around like that. And um, I was able to tell him, look, when you sit down at your QWERTY keyboard, your hands go here and they stay here. And then from here, you move around and do all your stuff, right? That's the same thing that this is, is that your fingers have to learn where to go to make things happen. And just like when you first sat down at a keyboard to write code, you were, you know, needed to learn where to put your fingers so you weren't hunting and pecking. That's the same thing on this guitar. And when I was able to at least throw that analogy to him, he was able to, you know, pick up on, okay, this is the importance of doing what my instructor is telling me to do right now. And if the kid doesn't feel like what you're telling him to do is important or going to help him or lead him in the right direction, then there's a lack of motivation there, mm -hmm. lack of motivation to follow through. And they generally don't. And I think that was my experience growing up through mostly high school I, uh, and, and, and middle school. But those one, two or three teachers that stand out from my time, there were great instructors who found a way to connect with me. And that's something that I'm trying to do with my students. And I'm sure it's something you're trying to do with your students because you just can't go in there, yet bark at your students, do it like this, and then expect results. Mm -hmm. You have to find a way to convey knowledge to your students. And that's the biggest trick as an instructor. No, absolutely. And, and the point that you make that I think is absolutely central is the point about trust, where it's like, you know, you show this kid, okay, here's how you do it. And then he does it and it's like, oh my gosh, it works. Now there's a trust relationship that's been established where it's like, okay, you know, and, and the, the, you know, what Seth shows me has value and is valid. And this is one of the things that for me is really exciting about jujitsu is it's a lot like science in that like it is a repeatable experiment that works. If Seth shows you how to do an armbar and you do an armbar and hey, it works, you know, on the mat, the mats, the mats don't lie. And, and, and so I'm wondering like, you know, one of the things about jujitsu is that you have some folks that come in sometimes that are skeptics and that have to sort of be shown. And, and I'm wondering like, uh, you know, like obviously, ideally, everybody that walks in the door should have an open mind and you know, should should, be, should believe like, hey, yeah, you know, this has been a repeatable experiment that we've seen since the early UFCs before, mm -hmm. you know, before the early UFCs, but for most of America since Hoist uh, in 1993. And like, what's the, like, I, I guess, what is the relationship? Like, you know, the folks that need to be shown are a small minority. Mm -hmm. But like, how do you, how do you handle that situation where a guy's like, well, would that really work? Well, the first thing I can do is I can ask him to shrimp. <laughs> I can sit down on the mat and I can say, all right, this is the shrimping motion and it's going to be very uncomfortable. It's counterintuitive and it's going to feel a little bit ridiculous, but this is what it looks like. And then they try and it feels uncomfortable and it's a little bit ridiculous and their body doesn't like to do it. And then I can say, okay, from here on out, you can believe me on everything else because I didn't lie there. <laughs> I can say, look, see how awkward that was? At least we start with an understanding of, all right, he was being honest right in the beginning. Um, but as far as the, the knucklehead students, you know, they are few and far between. Um, but I have picked up on uh, that sort of skepticism. I remember a student a few years back um, who I found out afterwards was there from another martial art and wanted to see how his grappling martial art would stack up against jujitsu. And he was only there for a couple weeks, but I remember um, getting a really weird vibe from him right off the bat, you know, and he enrolled for a month and it just, I mean, he wasn't like, you know, uh, trying to beat people up or trying to be too tough or just being aggressive, but he had a very skeptical demeanor. Um, and I was rolling with him one time and he wouldn't tap to like a very clearly locked in arm lock and you know and then I asked him like afterwards you know like what's going on he's like well I just wanted to see what my breaking point I want to see how if I could get out I wanted to see all this stuff and so like when you're there to try to prove make make me prove jujitsu to you 
that's a tough one, you know, because I'm not in this to break arms and mm-hmm. put people to sleep who are skeptical of jujitsu. I just mm-hmm. that's not what I enjoy doing. I'm sure there's a lot of instructors who would love to do that. Um, I'm not a big fan of that, you know. So the the some of the best ways, especially once they start getting into it, is to just feel some pressure, you know, feel like, oh, man, this person is 130 pounds and they're mounting me, but they feel like an elephant. So I absolutely have in class, let's say I've got someone who's a little skeptical in class and we're teaching side control escapes or we're teaching um, mount or something like that or whatever it might be. I might save a minute or two at the end of class to do a little positional something where I just basically say, all right, let's get into our mount position here and just want to have the bottom person 30 seconds just try to escape. You know, just try to escape for this next 30 seconds and then we'll switch top and bottom. It'll be very controlled and very, you know, oversight. But whoever that newer skeptical person might be is going to be locked up with someone that I know they're not going to get out from underneath. And that person on top is not going to be trying to submit them. They're just going to be trying to control them and stop whatever it is the goal of this class might be. And uh, But other people, you know, you don't need to prove jujitsu to that long. And they just have an open enough mind that they'll come back for a few classes and eventually figure it out. Yeah, most definitely. And, th- you know, and that, that I think is also the value. You know, we talked about jujitsu being... Uh, an art for the small people, the people that are less physically strong. And this is another of the things that I think is valuable about the students that you've cultivated is that you have a ton of women training with you. You have a ton of smaller people. And so it's it's very difficult, I think, for especially big, strong new knuckleheads to deny like, oh, that 130 pound woman got on top of me and I couldn't get out from under her. And, you know, that's real. That is real. That is real. Yeah, as in a bigger instructor too. You know, as a bigger instructor, I have a. I've always, you know, I'm six foot six, around two hundred fifteen pounds, and so do I sell jujitsu with my ability to control you? Probably not as much as you. You know, when you have people. I mean, when you've been running your class, um, I know you mostly have regulars coming into your early morning classes and stuff, but you probably had a few visitors who've come in, and you're not. A, you know, tiny person, but you're not as big as I am. And so as an instructor for yourself, you know, you have to sort of walk up maybe even a more difficult line than I do, smaller instructors, because they might be more tempted to say, well, this is what I can do. If you want to see it, come on over here and let's roll, you know, versus I'm, you know, wouldn't get as much out of doing that with someone brand new. Have you had some knuckleheads coming in your morning classes? I have had, I've had one or two, like not, not like full knuckleheads, maybe like 0.5 knucklehead. And, and so let, let me speak to like your first point about like, one of the things about you being a larger person a lot of humans, for whatever reason, have the excuse-making gene, and so it's easier for them to be like, well, Seth is just big, as opposed to Seth has been doing this for 15 years at a very high level under very qualified instructors and probably knows a thing or two. And so I think that, that, and that has to be frustrating for you uh, from time to time and, uh, you know, when, when, folks, when folks say that. And like, I don't have that problem. The problem I have is a little different, which is I think I probably have more people that want to test because like, I think most people you know, either because of intelligence or, or just, you know, I think most people know they're not going to get over on you. But I think I have, you know, when a 200 pound dude that doesn't know anything comes in, he probably knows he's not going to beat you. But a lot of those guys think they're going to beat me. And it's like, man, and, and like, I don't have a lot of the macho in me, but that gets a little bit of the macho in me, right? And so, <laughs> and so like, I, I haven't had this a lot happen at the morning classes because most of my, you know, we have a great vibe, lots of regulars and stuff like that. But just every, and, and, and like, when I say I have like 0.5 knucklehead, this is not the guy that's like, with the shoulders up around his ears, that's like, oh, I'm gonna, gonna destroy everything in my path. But like the dude that's like, let's see if there's something to this jujitsu thing. 
And so what I try to do is like I tr- I really believe in what you know the thing that you taught that jujitsu is an art of positional control that leads leads to submission right that I'm gonna position before submission and so if I have to roll with somebody typically I'm just gonna flow from position to position on them and try to show them that like not only can I get to a position and stop them from escaping but if they're able to try to escape that I have another thing down the door waiting for them. Mm-hmm. And like one of the other things that, that 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 I think is useful too is that like I try and use as little energy as possible, and so that one of the things that I think helps sell jujitsu because I'm utterly with you on the I'm not in the business of oh yeah I'm I'm going to try to choke you out or I'm going to try to hurt your arm or anything like that I don't think that's the point I think it's counterproductive, um, but I do think what's really useful is to not be out of breath at the end, and so. In a couple of the instances where things like this have happened, I'm I'm very conscious of not using any energy, and so that I may or may not submit the person that wants to see what this jujitsu thing's about. I'll submit them if they if they utterly hand me their arm or they mm-hmm. hand me their neck, and I'm like, okay, well now you have to know that this isn't okay, and, and you're gonna tap now. But like for the most part, I'm just gonna positionally dominate them, and then at the end, I'm gonna say, hey man, great job, and w- without being out of breath is mm-hmm. my goal, and for them to just be like, thanks, hey, that was that was really good, and. and and at that point, I feel like that's 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 good about making believers. And at that point, you have to have a conversation with them. I think I learned that from Jake. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Jake. I remember actually asking him one time when we were rolling a long time ago. You know, he calls it a fade or face, mm-hmm. which just means you don't look like anything's ever bothering you ever. And um, I remember rolling. I remember exactly when it was, but clearly remember asking him. You know, like. Dude, when you when you get done rolling, sometimes it looks like you're not even out of breath. It looks like you didn't even try. And he said, "Yeah, that's about eighty percent Fedor face." You know, he said it's 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 mostly just trying to put off that that aura, and it does help because even to me as an experienced jujitsu person, when I would see him get done rolling and not look like he was tired, it would make me think that he was, you know being that efficient and he was being that efficient because obviously sometimes if you're really out of breath you can't help it you're going to be breathing but giving off that or that vibe of like yeah i'm good i can keep doing this that does help with the efficiency of your jujitsu and also truly being able to control your breathing um but it's funny you know back into what we said about people who look like they or they they might be able to handle especially new you and i were talking with someone recently who had just tried their first class. I'm not going to call out any people, but they had just tried their first class. And after the fundamental class, I always say, um, or no, right at when we start the fundamental class, I say, all right, guys, let's get a, you know, more experienced people get with some of the newer people and let's let's uh, work together with whatever it is that we're, we're, we're teaching. And um, this person had, was recounting that, that moment when the class broke up and they started looking for partners and he was a bigger guy and he said he saw Shayla walking over towards him you know and he was like okay and here's this purple ball girl cool I can probably handle this <laughs> and then like she went right past him to another girl and behind Shayla was Hamid and he was like come on over here let's go <laughs> and he said his heart just sunk and you and I looked at each other I was like well your heart was gonna sink if Shayla had worked with you as well you know so perception is not always reality in in jujitsu certainly but um yeah you know people don't really have any clue what they're doing and what jujitsu is when they walk in into uh, into this spot. And so that's also one of the reasons why we have to make sure controlling somebody and not submitting them. I've told that to my you guys many, many times. Is that like, look, you got a knucklehead in class and they're coming after you or you see them being too aggressive or you see them being too rough. I was like, I'm okay with letting them know. I'm okay with a, a good, strong role. Just don't break anything. Mm-hmm. Don't submit them. Don't snap anything. Don't try to even submit them. You know, Just control them. So much more can be done with an incapacitating feeling of mount than an armbar that 
extended a little too fast, you know, or, or anything like that. So I'm all about the, the, the smash and control rather than attack and, and snap. Yeah, but, but like before you gave me those, those, before you and I had those conversations, I used to be the guy that was like, oh, this dude needs to know. And so I'm just going to submit him as many times as I can. <laughs> and then like now, and this, this is really rare, but because usually I just do the mountain control, mountain control. But if I really want to send a message, I'll start talking to the nearest guy about what we're going to have for lunch after. <laughs> like, hey, you guys want to go out of coffee after this? Oh, you know, and then just kind of be, be talking and doing other things. But uh, yeah. plenty of ways to get through to people. <laughs> Indeed. U.S. Grappling is our favorite tournament organization for a lot of reasons. Run by grapplers for grapplers, U.S. Grappling consistently provides the best tournament experience for competitors. Whether it's a points tournament or submission only, and U.S. Grappling runs true no time limit submission only events, it's the best place to compete and to watch your friends compete. Check out upcoming events and register online at usgrappling.com. So in what ways is jiu-jitsu like basketball, and in what ways is jiu-jitsu not like basketball? Yeah, so I think I actually just recently stumbled on a great analogy while teaching jiu-jitsu to a brand new student who had some basketball experience. <laughs> um, and I was explaining to them that like inside of jiu-jitsu, inside of a fight, and this could be true for boxing, kickboxing, MMA, jiu-jitsu, probably anything um, where there is a one-on-one -on -one conflict happening, it is a dance and it is a balance between what do they want to do to me and what do I want to do to them. And you've heard me talk about that in class. And if, if I, as a black belt, am rolling with a blue belt, the shift is really high as far as what would I like to do with this blue belt? What is this blue belt going to try to do to me? You know, very low uh, attention to what they might do to me, but a, a high degree of attention to what I would like to do to them. Conversely, for that blue belt or that white belt rolling with me, they have to have a high level of attention to what is Seth trying to do to me right now and a very low expectation of what can I do to this you know, black belt. And that balance, it's literally like a scale and it's a shift. And that same thing can be said as a guard bringing the basketball up the court when I'm at the playground playing ball and I see this person who you know is just here for a, a, a fun day with their friends who probably isn't the most experienced basketball player in the world but enjoys getting out on the court and running around when I see them deciding to pick me up about half court and check me I get to be sort of thinking like okay what would I like to do to this person here would I like to cross them over would I like to set up a nice play with a part pick and roll give and go would I back them down post them up I get to sort of decide what I want to do with them because my skills are that much much better than theirs. Um, conversely, if I'm bringing that ball down the court and I see, you know, or I know my person who's checking me is very good and very talented, I'm going to have to protect the ball. I'm going to have to make sure I put the right angles on this person and see the court, maybe pass, maybe call for a screen. And so there's always that sort of balance between what you want to do and what somebody wants to do to you. And generally speaking, when you fail, you know, you've that balance got out of check. You know, if, if he steals the ball from me, I was careless with what I thought I could do to him and what he could do to me. Um, and the same thing could be happening in jujitsu is that if I'm trying to pass and he, I'm sorry, if I'm trying to sweep and he passes or I'm trying to pass and he sweeps, I was out of balance with what he was trying to do to me and what I should have been, you know, mm -hmm. responding with. And so there's probably that if you have experience in any sport like tennis or, you know, anything like that, you probably can find analogies that exist within the balance of what are they trying to do to me with what I want to do to them. And when you fail or succeed, there's probably some sort of a correlation with that balance and how you approached it. But basketball was a was a fun time for me and and in a lot of ways uh, completely different because of the team aspect of it. Jiu-Jitsu is so much more um, so much more 
on you and honest. And I remember clearly, especially when I was playing in some times where I was, uh, you know, had a, a high pedigree or considered, you know, one of the better people on the floor was if we were to lose, I could still hang my head on while well, I had dropped 35 and had 15 rebounds. And, you know, it was that guy who cost us the game, you know, not that you would want to do that, but the competitor and you certainly finds a way to rationalize a lot of stuff. If I lose in jujitsu, well, it was on me, you know, I should have prepared better or he was just better than me. And so basketball gives me an out or it would can sometimes give you an out. But uh, certainly competitive juices were, are, you know, were born in basketball for me. I believe that. And, you know, and I want to return to something you said in the middle, which I didn't really understand until I got my purple belt, where you talk about the dance and the difference in skill levels. I remember rolling with you and some of the other upper belts when I was a white belt and just defending, 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 like, oh, my God, everything is a trap, everything is a trap. And I didn't quite understand until, I, until you know, I became a more uh, an upper belt that... You know, and, and I see this now when I roll with lower belts is they think everything you do is setting themselves them up for something. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times guys get in this huge defensive mindset where like, I must break every grip. I must not. Wait, he's letting me pass. Why is he letting me pass? It's a trap. And it's like, no, man, maybe I'm just playing around. Maybe I'm letting you work your stuff. But have you found yourself yet exploiting that? <laughs> yeah, because that is the other thing is that you might be rolling with someone, and, and I'd love to hear your take as a purple belt, a newer instructor, but a, a um, you know still an experienced player. Is that when you roll with some of these your students that are you know at your early morning classes, you must question why are you doing that and then at some point maybe be able to connect the dots and be like oh you thought i was going to do this right does that happen to you when you're when you're training as well oh yeah most definitely most definitely that that down that rabbit hole of like he's making a complete mistake right now should be doing this but he's not because he thinks i'm doing this and that misinterpretation you know is something that can be exploited and and oftentimes you know you either point it out or you just exploit it yeah and like and and it's a and you know that's a, an extremely valid point and it's and it helps you develop your jiu jitsu at least it helps me because it helps me see further down the rabbit hole and helps me think okay uh you know, he thought I was going to do X. I was really planning to do Y. Why did he think I was planning to do X? Okay, if I had actually done Y, my options were then A, B, and C, and such like that. And it's and it's funny because I will often start roles with really with less experienced people working on my newer techniques, like the C game techniques. It's like, hey, I just learned this at a seminar, or hey, Seth has been trying to show me this for years. I suck at it. I'm going to try this against this, you know, this mm-hmm. three stripe white belt. And then often that person will strike will will sort of see what I'm trying to do or, or think they do and try to like disrupt that but then that creates another avenue for me to exploit and so I'll end up working on something that wasn't the initial technique that I thought I was going to work on speaking like that and real quick just to because I do wonder about you know your your um, mindset I think you have a good mind for a lot of different things but as far as jujitsu goes um, there is such an opportunity to nerd out on the possibilities of positional evolution um, and there's such a the opportunity if you have the uh, capacity the motivation and the time to think about the ways different positions can evolve how do you as the person you are because I know you're a fairly nerdy person when it comes to not just jujitsu I mean everything you know like you are you're willing to dive into everything and sort of extrapolate on anything at any time um, in jujitsu have you found the because for me truthfully is that I stop at a point Mm-hmm. And I in, I embrace the magnitude of it, and I enjoy the 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 sort of cloudy vision of all the possibilities. But it's too much for me to uh, comprehend, or it's too much for me uh, most of the time to spend time 
mm-hmm. exerting mental energy. Does that make sense to yeah, you? Yeah, no, me? Yeah. When you were in that spot, though, I think you probably, you know, probably go a little bit further down that rabbit hole in your own journey. Have you found that that exploration um, has helped you or as an instructor, as a practitioner? What do you think? I definitely think it's helped me. And two things to sort of set the framework. First of all, nerd life is totally my alibi. I nerd about, out about everything. And second, I'm totally going to steal that phrase, like the cloudy vision of possibilities, because that's an <laughs> awesome phrase. But but I do think it's helped me. And like part of it is the way that I learn, which is different in the way that other people learn. Like for some people, you can sort of set a broad, like you mentioned BJ Penn, right? To some people, you set a broad conceptual framework and like, BJ, we're trying to get the arm. And BJ's like, cool, I got the arm. All right, now next. And that's not me. For me, I have to be very sort of linear and rigid in establishing decision trees. So for example, like, okay, he has my sleeve. Okay, is it the far sleeve or the near sleeve? Okay, if it's the near sleeve, I can do this. If it's the far sleeve, I can do that. And for me, when I go down those rabbit holes, it helps me to see possibilities. And as someone that's not a particularly physically gifted person, I'm not the least athletic person in the world, but I'm not the most either. It helps me to sort of be a step ahead of in the progressions, which is the way you beat people that are physically more adept than you. And I think the way that this plays out is mostly in the open guard, because there's such a world of possibilities in the open guard these days, right? Where you have all these different grips and lapel guard and sleeves and belts and pants and, and then limbs and such. And so for me, like being able to sit down and write down those progressions and say like, okay, if he has this, then this happens, what do I do? And sort of drilling, and we, we always talk about the importance of drilling to repeat those, really helps me not just so to be able to implement those while drilling or while rolling, but also to sort of understand the like why I'm doing it, like because because the process of jujitsu is like science, right? You try experiments, those experiments fail. You try again, you fail better. Eventually, mm. you succeed, and you're like, ah, okay, this is why the failure happened. So now I can tell the students that is why the failure happens. That makes so much sense with you and your open guard, especially because you know when I roll with you, we always end up playing. I like playing inside your open guard because it is something that's always changing and evolving. And I've I've actually, as your instructor, been able to watch your evolution of your open guard. Um, you know. M- kind of follow through those decisions. I see you. I feel you making those decisions. I stop you a lot and I just yeah. say, no, you can't do that. <laughs> like but at the, the same time, I see the attempt, you know, to say, this is where I want to put my foot or this is where I want to put, he did this, so I should do this. And I'm a huge believer in that the uh, mantra of control is when he does something, we do something. And so, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it must be, it must be overwhelming at times as well to limit yourself on what you should and should not be spending time with because you go so far down the rabbit hole and it's like you or you jumped up to the 35th floor and you've neglected the whole 20th floor you know of what you should be doing to support what you want to do up top um there's a, probably a balance for learning just like there's a balance for fighting you know inside both those things yeah most definitely and like you and i've, I've definitely we, we, you know you've instilled in me a lot about the importance of transitions right because I would love it if I were able to force positions on people, but like not everybody has that luxury, right? Like, you know, not everybody is built like, uh, you know, Buchecho uh, Buche- or Hajer. <laughs> exactly, yeah. right? It'd be awesome if I could just break every grip, smash every face. But well, like- it's good that your learning style has been conducive to your, your rolling style because it is. You probably do. You know, you're like you said, you're not the least athletic person in the world, but, you know, you're going to have a more important emphasis on knowing where to go when something gets shut down than maybe someone who might say, oh, you want to shut that down? You're, you know, no, I'm going to take it back, you know? So it's probably conducive for you to be nerding out on, on where you should and shouldn't go, but depending on what they do. It's probably... 
speaks volumes to how well you've gotten in such a short period of time, too. Those of you who don't know, Jeff has an amazing open guard. <laughs> well, I have an amazing instructor, and I have totally lost track of time. We got, a, we got just a minute, and so like, I hope that over the last hour you've understood how much and why I've learned so much from this man, Seth Champ, Hoist Gracie Black Belt, outstanding jiu-jitsu practitioner, outstanding jiu-jitsu instructor. We could easily talk for another two hours, mm-hmm. and I'm so grateful you free to come in. No, thank you. Day. It's been a pleasure, and I'll try to get in here more often and uh, look forward to um, you know coming back again soon. Thanks. Seth. Seth has a seminar April 15th at the Edge Martial Arts in Lynchburg, or you can train with him and me at Triangle Jiu-Jitsu Academy in Durham, North Carolina. Check us out online at trianglejujitsu.com. This is Dirty White Belt Radio. My name is Jeff Shaw. We are going to get on out of here, and we will see you again next Sunday. Thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.